Good morning, New Song. It's good seeing you all this morning. And I can't even begin to tell you just how glad I am to be here. And especially to have my family here with me this morning. Uh, This is a real, real treat. Um, My... Uh, we were the original My Three Sons, for those of you who are old enough to remember My Three Sons. Uh, for, for the rest of you who don't know what that means, find somebody with gray hair and ask them and they'll tell you. So, <laughs> um, but I, I really am thrilled to be with you and to have 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 my family, I actually have. Um, uh, we've got three sons. I always tell people my wife is really tough because she raised three boys, so she just little thing, but she kind of kept us all in line. Um, but uh, and we come from a long line of boys on both sides of the family. She's got. Ten kids in her family. There were seven boys and three girls. And and when we started this next generation, I'm not sure what happened. But uh, all of a sudden, our boys started producing girls. And so out of six grandchildren, I've got four granddaughters and two grandsons. And so I've had to learn how to deal with little girls in my family. Uh, but it has been really marvelous. Uh, my oldest son and his wife... Lisa, Ryan and Lisa are here, and, and their two uh, uh, children, Annabelle and Aaron, are somewhere in this maze of rooms. Uh, my youngest, uh, my middle son, Drew, is, is here, uh, and then my youngest son, Michael. Michael is from Orlando. Uh, he and his wife, Susie, live there. They have four children. Uh, but Michael is here because this is his birthday. Friday was his birthday, so we have really been enjoying having him here. Um, But it's been first time in a number of years that all five of us have been together in the same city. So this is a real special occasion. And I will say this about all of them. Before I had any children, um, or before LaWanda had the children, she did the work. Um, I told the Lord that I did not want my sons to be religious. Uh, there's a story behind that. I don't have time to go into the details of it, but I said, I don't want my sons to be religious, but I want them to know you at a young age. And God has more than answered that. My sons are all men who pursue God and who love God. And, uh, I, I am grateful for, for the faithfulness of God. So, well, this morning, uh, I, I really have looked forward to my time with you. Um, I've enjoyed the last couple times. This is more and more becoming like home and family. So, uh, so I am uh, really excited for what I believe God has this morning. Um, when I was here the last two times, we remember we talked about following Jesus and we talked about hearing God. This morning, uh, I want to talk about uh, something just as fundamental, but that has some pretty immediate implications for us. I want to talk about living, living for the king and the kingdom. Um, There's a reason for that because of the unique and the specific time that we are in now. Um, The truth of the matter is we need to know how to navigate this. When I say this, I mean the the culture, the season, the time that we're in. Uh, as a new believer, years ago, I've known the Lord now. I just had my spiritual birthday, April 1st. I met the Lord in 72, so this was year number 46 for me. As new believers, we would sit and we would kind of project out just what it would be like in the end days. And, and I kind of thought that was some time past my own life. We talk about the various stories and theories and, and so on, not realizing that within my own lifetime, I would see some things that are very biblical taking place. And the truth of the matter is we need to know how to navigate this. Um, I am concerned especially for my grandchildren because what my sons grew up through 
doesn't even come close to what my grandchildren are having to grow up with. And your grandchildren, if you have them, or your great-grandchildren, should the Lord, should the Lord tarry. So I, this has some real implications for that, and, and may the Lord help us this morning as we go, go through his word to, to take a look at that. My, my base will be Colossians chapter 1, verses 13 through 20. Let me read this. For he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is also head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him, and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that, that you have given your word as, as a guide for us, that we might know how to follow you, that we might know even of you and your ways. Lord, that we might know how to live, how to please you, that it would become for us a source of faith and trust. Lord, you have exalted your word above your name according to your word. And so this morning I say thank you for your word. I thank you for meeting us and bringing us to this place of your presence. And so, Lord, may we not harden our hearts as your word talks about, but may we lean in to hear that which you were saying. I pray specifically, Father, that you would give us ears to hear all that you were saying so that we might hear, know, comprehend, and respond appropriately as you lead us. Help me, I ask, Father, that I might be faithful to you as a servant, not only to declare your word, but also to convey your heart. Lord, we just commend this time to you to the end, that both the declaring and the hearing of your word would bring honor to you and lead us to extend your kingdom. And so we consecrate this time now in Jesus' name. Thank you, O God. Amen. Amen. Um, reason that, that I wanted to go here in terms of the scriptures is that it's important for us to, as I said, know how to navigate the season that we're in. My fear is that most of us, most of us in our training, in our foundations, and the truth of the matter is most Christians don't have good foundations. We, we kind of prayed the prayer and we got in church and we immediately got involved. But the Bible is very clear about foundations. Um, uh, in, in Hebrews chapter 6, if you take a look at the first few verses of Hebrews 6, Paul writes, or the writer of, of, of Hebrews, most people uh, think that it is Paul. It's not uh, absolutely clear. I believe it is Paul. But if you take a look at the first few verses of chapter 6, what you'll see is the writer talking about the elementary principles concerning our faith. Those elementary principles are really the, the, the bulk of what you get in most seminaries. But the Bible calls them elementary principles. And the Bible says that we need to leave the elementary principles and go on to things that make for maturity. So that shows you about the level in terms of scriptural expectation for our own maturity. We're at very much elementary levels. As a matter of fact, the writer says by this time, most of you need to be teachers of these things, but you have need for someone to teach you. So I think that the Bible is very clear in terms of what it presents, but the reality for us is that we really do find ourselves struggling in this season to, to have an impact in the culture that we're in. And it's especially frightening if you have children or grandchildren. Um, I didn't have to worry about agendas. Uh, quite frankly, I didn't have, and, I, and I'm... Well, I'm just going to put what I believe the scriptures talk about, and I'm not going to make commentary. But I didn't have to worry necessarily about LGBT issues when my kids were little. We were concerned about protecting our little daughters and granddaughters. I didn't have to add to that my sons and my grandsons. 
And so we're in a culture that, by all measures, now post-Christian, post-modern, and actually hostile toward us. We used to be the heroes. Now we're the villains. And so we really need to understand how do we navigate that? The winds, there's a, there's an author, his name is Rod Dreher. I won't go into a whole lot, but he's got a fascinating book called, uh, The Benedict Option, but he makes an observation in talking about this. He says, in many of our cases, given the winds of the culture that they are so strong, he says it's like walking out of a church service, and in that church service, your light was lit. You got a little candle, and it's lit, and you walk outside, to gale force winds. Gale force winds are 75 mile an hour winds. And your expectation is that my candle is going to stay lit in gale force winds. The truth of the matter is the strength of the darkness in the culture is such that it is really having a devastating effect in many respects on the church. If you don't believe me, let me give you two real quick precedents because this issue of, of the king and the kingdom are important to that. If you take a look at the gospel from uh, from the days of, of the apostles, the movement of the gospel was the Middle East, it was Jerusalem, and it moved westward because largely of the Mediterranean. And so we know of the movement of the gospel north of the Mediterranean. That's where Paul went. He was, he was in Rome. And so we knew the, the movement of the gospel through Europe and, and by extension on to the New World. But there was tremendous movement of the gospel south of the Mediterranean. Northern Africa, uh, Tertullian, Augustine, Cyprian, Athanasius. These were all in a period that immediately followed the apostles called the period of, of the church fathers. Our creeds came from these guys. Much of what the church is built on in terms of our belief came from these. So there was a major impact that the gospel had in North Africa, Tunisia, and, and, and such. Fast forward, fast forward to 2018. What do you know about what's present now in North Africa? Tunisia, Libya. What defines North Africa now? Is it Christianity? No. It's Islam. This place that was so thriving and vibrant with truth is now Islamic. Christianity is virtually, not quite, but virtually extinct in that part of the world. Europe, if you know much about Europe or have traveled much through Europe, I have friends who have spent uh, large amounts of time in Europe. If you take a look at Europe, do you know what's happening to the church in Europe? It's declining, significantly declining in Europe. In many cases, minority status now in the very place that the gospel predominated. The winds and the inability of the church to navigate that. In the U.S., if we don't make major adjustments in another 20 years, we're in the same place. So it's important to understand, how do we navigate this stuff? What I want to suggest to you is that we have taken a part of what the gospel presents to us, and we've really built that. We are all would be all identified as evangelicals. I certainly would, and many of you would as well. You believe that salvation is by faith alone and Christ alone. And so that's, you know, we, we, and we, we preach the good news. We preach that we, we've got this personal Savior who is Jesus. And, and that has been tremendously impactful for all of our lives. I met the Lord in 1972, 46 years, uh, uh, following Jesus. But I want to suggest that there is a part of that that we've not given nearly as much attention to. As a matter of fact, we have so landed on one place that we have come dangerously close to what Paul writes as another gospel. And that is, therein is the real adjustment. Now, it's not an adjustment that we can't make. We just need to know to make it. And that is the thing that I want to talk about this morning. We all are comfortable and we know about Jesus as our personal Savior. Let me go back and, and read again a portion of Colossians 1. It says, verse 13, For he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sin. 
And he is the invisible, is the image of the invisible God, firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions, rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is the head over all things, and all things in him hold together. He is also the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that in him, uh, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him, and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in the heavens. This is about Jesus. It's about Jesus. But it's, it's us understanding what the scriptures have to say about Jesus. Most of us have come from a place where we say, well, you know, we just need to meet Jesus and, and he is the, the solution to all of our problems. Well, here's the thing about Jesus that we need to understand. And the reason I wanted to go here is that there is a fuller picture of who Jesus is in the scriptures that we need to understand. Let me read for you Acts chapter 2, verses 36 through 37. Uh, you don't have to turn there, but if you want to go back and, and take a look later on, that's the reference. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him, meaning Jesus, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you've crucified. Now, when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and to the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? Peter said to them, Repent and let each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. But in verse 36 it says, God has made him both Lord and Christ. Both Lord and Christ. Do you know in, in Romans 10, if, uh, if you can think there for a moment, what the Bible says the, the conditions for salvation are? It says that if we believe a certain thing and if we confess a certain thing. What's the thing that we have to believe? Anybody know? God raised him from the dead. If we believe God raised him from the dead. But the other condition was what? If we confess... Confess what? Say it again. Ah! See, therein is the issue. It's not just simply that we confess Jesus, but that we confess Jesus as Lord. Do you realize that the confession of Jesus as Lord is, is half of the condition for salvation? It's not just that you believe that God raised him from the dead, but you confess him as Lord. Now, what does that mean? What does that mean that Jesus is Lord? Let me give you another another term. Lordship implies what? Leadership, rulership. Give me another word that would be synonymous with leadership and rulership. Somebody here said it. I heard it. Kingship. Yes, yes, he is king. Do you understand that in, in, in all of creation, that God's ultimate relationship with his creation, he was the creator of all of that. But what is his ongoing relationship with his creation? He rules over it. He rules over it. Do you realize that in the Old Testament, more than 300 times, um, God, whose name is never pronounced by the Jews. Did you know that? Lest anyone is guilty of taking his name in vain. So titles were used. Titles were used to refer to God rather than his name because nobody wanted to take his name in vain. The one title that is used in all of the Old Testament, then more so than any other title, was Adonai. Adonai was the title that is used. And and I won't give you a whole lesson in that because there's not time for that. But Adonai refers ultimately to God as the sovereign. No one in higher authority than that. It speaks to his sovereignty. Interestingly, in the New Testament, the second most used title for uh, toward Jesus, anybody know what it is? What's the most used title for Jesus? Anyone know? Christ. Christ is not a name. It's not Jesus' last name. Christ is the title that is used. 
the, the Messiah. But the second most used title for Jesus in the New Testament was, there's a, 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 a Latin word, kurios. If you're Catholic, you would recognize that. Latin-based language is kurios. Kurios is no more than the Latin trans, or the translation of Adonai. More than 500 times it's used. So the issue is this matter of ruling. The polit- the issues of the universe are essentially political, if you can see that. I don't want to press that issue, but I do want you to understand this is about ruling. This is about who will rule. We've got a culture now where the question is, who's going to rule? The culture says to us, You don't have a right to speak into these issues. When Jesus extends his rule, where where does the rule of Christ, where does it really go? Where does it fit? Where does Jesus rule? Over everything. Does he have the right to rule how how you conduct business in your house? Does he have the right to rule rule over or, or to speak into how you deal with your finances? How about your health? How about raising your kids? How about where you go on vacation? What about your job? How about when you go to the grocery store? What about the car that's in front of you that just cut you off? Does he have a right to speak into that? So in essence, what does Jesus have a right to speak into? Everything. So if this is a matter of the kingdom, where is the rule of Christ to be manifest? Every place. And if it has by rights of the creator to be manifest every place, then how important is it that we understand that he is Lord? Let me tell you something. Who do you think he's going to reign through? It's us. Do you see my point? As long as Jesus is only Savior, I'm really not concerned about anything. Well, let me ask you this. What do you get as the result of Jesus being Savior? Oh, what is it? Eternal life. Eternal life. I get to go to heaven. But if that's all that, that I'm looking at, then what happens when I get saved? Let me just kick back and see if I can survive this until either the rapture comes to take me out or I die. Isn't that really the, the, the issue? I just need to hold on long enough. And sooner or later, Jesus, you'll come. Uh, a little help here. But the minute that you insert this other issue concerning his lordship, now i got to do something with that. Because I have to obey him. Either Jesus is Lord of all, or he is not Lord at all. So now I'm compelled that I've got to relate to you. I've got to deal with you in terms of my obedience to you in my personal life. So when I walk out the room, man, we can have a great time when I'm in here until the guy cuts me off on the road when, I, when I'm on my way home. Then I lose all my religion and got all kinds of names for him. And I don't even think about what Jesus is concerned about. So there's something else that really we've got to pay attention to. That's why I'm saying that as long as we just simply are content with Jesus, what you do to save us, then that comes really close to another gospel because it's the issue of his lordship that really goes to the larger question of God reigning in his creation. He gave it to us to do. To reign in his place. He has made them to be kings and priests, according to Revelation 5, and they will reign on the earth. Now that, some of that is for the future, but some of it is now. So there's this notion that Jesus is, is our savior. It says that in, in verse 13, he delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. Okay? Two issues. He delivered us from darkness. Is that a kingdom? Yes. Yes. And he transferred us to the kingdom of his son. You think for a minute. Two kingdoms. What's the kingdom of darkness look like? 
what would characterize injustice, kingdom of darkness, unrighteousness, kingdom of darkness, racism and bigotry, kingdom of darkness, immorality, kingdom of darkness. Okay, all of those issues. So he's taken us from the kingdom of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. Righteousness, kingdom of the son. Justice, kingdom of the son. Holiness, purity. What happens when the righteous reign? What does it say? The na- when, when the king, uh, when the righteous rule, the, the, the nations rejoice. Rejoice. And so this is not just a matter of Sunday morning church, folks. This is a matter of an outward manifestation of a kingdom that is an alternative to this thing. And if we don't talk kingdom, if we don't talk an an, an alternative to what we are currently seeing, then give me my candle and let me walk outside and see if that thing's going to stay lit. When God was going to destroy the earth, the very first time, there was so much darkness. Who did he talk to? You remember? Noah. What did he tell Noah to do? Build an ark. Why? Because there's judgment that's coming. Where's the place of safety? In the ark. Do you know the interesting thing about the ark? That the only inhabitants or the only the ones who were in the ark were the ones who built the ark. They were the only ones who were in it. It was Noah and his family. Everybody else died. Why? Because there was this issue going on outside. There was this flood going on outside. And there needed to be a place of safety. Let me tell you something. That in the culture right now, the safe place is not in this room. It's not in this room. And it's not in the other 300,000 rooms that are across the United States. Because the minute that you walk out the door... You've now got to confront some other things. There is this notion of the kingdom that will speak into how you live, not just simply as an individual, because a kingdom is not one person. You understand that, you know. I'm here in the United States. I'm an American citizen. But what is that? Does that apply to you? Sure it does. You're all Americans. Or, Or I'm assuming that that's the case. Of course, in New Song, I, you know, you guys are so diverse. You got folks from all over the world. So, you know, some are just visiting here. But in any nation, it's not just one person. And it's not just one person's individual life. It's how you live together. Unity, oneness are all manifestations of another kingdom, his kingdom. The one that we're transferred to. The common understanding for most of us is that when we get saved, we are, uh, we get saved and, and from my sins and I go to heaven. That doesn't mean I have to do much to change at all. I just pray the prayer. I just believe a few things and I get to go up. But the scriptural reality is that you have moved now from one kingdom to another, which means how you live, how you relate, what you do, how you deal with with virtually everything in life now is different because we're delivered from the domain of darkness. All of us have a testimony. It'd be interesting to hear at some point your testimony. In, in one of our churches years ago, we gave, oh my goodness, how many weeks did we give Lawanda? It, it was like a small group for us. Our churches were actually home churches. And we had a period of time where we would give an entire meeting to an individual and say, tell us your story. There was no music, no worship, nothing else. We were sitting in the living room, and, and that person, their task was, tell us your story. If you want to use pictures, you can do that. If you, there's music that helps you tell your story. But we want to know your story. It became, what was it like that brought me to this place? My testimony, how did I get delivered from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of his son? Because it was important for us to know that we all had a B.C. time. When you start to talk about the kingdom, now you're talking about significant changes. Why? Because nothing that you have can come past the cross. Nothing. I don't mean just simply your bad habits. 
I used to smoke Newports when I was in high school. Because I like that commercial about the brother in the blue dashiki, for those of you. Again, if you don't understand that, find somebody with gray hair and ask him about dashikis and all of that. But that's what I, what I used to do. That was the milder of things that went on, okay? So I knew that had to stop at the cross, but there were some other things that weren't quite so clear that this is necessarily a bad thing. Everything stops at the cross. If any man is in Christ, he is a old things, all things. What old things pass away? All of the old things pass away. There's a total reorientation that takes place once you start to understand who Jesus is as Savior and as Lord. I want to suggest to you some areas where you got to reorient things. Three in particular. When you see Jesus in terms of his place as King and as Lord, the first thing that's got to re, re, reorient is your worldview. I didn't say your theological position. I said your worldview. Why did I say that? Because your worldview is going to determine how you see even the Scriptures. Someone tell me another name for the United Klansmen of America. Anybody know? Let me give you the more familiar term. The Ku Klux Klan. That's the United Klansmen of America. If you were to talk to many members back in the 40s, 50s, and maybe even 60s, and start to ask them why they do what they do, especially regarding the, the separation of the races and segregation, because they advocated for that. Do you know what many of them would do? They would point to the Bible. They would point to the prohibition of marriage between Jews and Gentiles and say, see, there it is. God has said there shouldn't be this issue of mixing. What they were guilty of was creating God in their own image. Worldview shaped their theology. And your worldview will do exactly the same thing. If you don't understand that the word of God stands alone in determining what life is to be, and you've got to line up with it, if you don't understand that, then you're always going to be torturing and massaging and manipulating the word, the word of God so that it just simply fits your worldview. Now, all of a sudden, you've got a worldview that's antithetical to what the scriptures actually say. So the first thing that's got to reorient is your worldview. It all has to stop at the cross. Carlton became a different person at the cross. Now, I didn't realize that until some years later when, when the guy who was my pastor actually told me that. Carlton, nothing you have can come past the cross. You know what? When I, when I met Jesus, I came out of a, 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 an unusual circumstance, especially for young black guys. I went to a very prestigious boarding school out east, 50 miles north of Boston. I was there in the 60s and early 70s. I remember the, 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 the riots in Huff. I remember the stuff going on in Glenville. I remember the Afro set. I remember Harlow, Harlow Jones. I remember Huey, Luke, uh, Huey Newton and Bobby Seal and, and all of those folks because I subscribed to all of that. By the time I got out of high school, I hated white people. I did. I had a strong racial identity. And I was able to intellectualize because I was in an intellectual community, one of the most prestigious boarding schools in the U.S. Most of those people went to Harvard. I went to Case. But Jesus said, no, you can't even take that with you. So who I was... Because of the king and his kingdom had to stop at the cross. Lord, I can't even take my identity with me. So then, in your kingdom, who am I? What do the scriptures say? I'm a son. Does that speak to priorities? Let me go on to the second thing to reorient, and I'll tie some of those together. The first area, this area of worldview. The second area that you need to reorient are priorities and ambitions. 
Paul writes in Philippians 3, I press on in order that I may lay hold of that for which I was laid hold of by Christ. Do you realize that Jesus has a life and a future for you that are in direct conflict with the life and the future that you have for yourself? Let me say that again. Jesus has a life and a future for you that are in direct conflict with the life and the future that you have for yourself. The operative phrase there is direct direct conflict. I was... I saw myself a certain way. I saw life a certain way. And now it becomes a matter of, Lord, as such, what are my priorities? As a son, what are my priorities? What are your priorities as a son or a daughter of the king? Your priorities are, first and foremost, pleasing your father. Do you know what my race had to do with that issue of, of pleasing the father? Zip, zero, nada. Nothing. But I had a new set of priorities, which was I do always the things that are pleasing to my father. So, Father, whatever you want, that becomes the priority for me. You see what happens now? i got to reorient how I'm seeing things. Just to give you the other half of that story in terms of identity, because that was an issue for me. The other piece of that, I said, God, who am, who am I? I came out of this whole thing. I'm black and I'm James Brown, black and I'm proud and all of this stuff. I came out of all of that. And then I find myself in Christ, and it's like, okay, who am I? What God did was to show me two aspects of who he is. And they're both attributes. God is eternal in his orientation, is he not? He's the eternal God. And he is redemptive in his orientation. Is not our salvation, but a redemption of those who were lost in sin, has he not redeemed us and purchased us and restored us to his purposes? So it was those two perspectives that became significant for me. Eternally speaking, I'm a son. When I die, when I go to be with him, or when he comes to get me, either one, I will always, throughout all of eternity, be a son. And it will always be about pleasing my father. But I've got a redemptive person purpose here on earth, here and now. And that speaks to the more immediate issues. From God's redemptive uh, perspective, it was very important that I was born with the family that I had, in the race that I am, with the culture that I bring. Why? Because the kingdom is looking to address life issues here and now. And this is what he showed me. There are some places that you'll be able to go as a black person. We weren't calling ourselves African-Americans. And so I'm not quite sure what time frame I'm in and what, what language to use sometimes. But he said it's going to be important that you are that way. Because from that vantage point, you can say and do things that you couldn't do from this vantage point. You see that? Redemptively, you have an assignment. That actually gets to the third, but I'll get there in a moment. Eternally, it's one thing. Redemptively, it's another. And so those two things are held in proper balance. Is Jesus the son of man or is he the son of God? Which is he? Is he the son of man or is he the son of God? Thank you. Yes. Do you, you see that that's possible. That's very possible. We have kind of these identifiers and it's like, well, yeah, I'm, I'm this. And in this situation, I need to be this. And in this situation, then I'm here. And so I'm always balancing those in his kingdom. But do they come into conflict? Oh, yeah, they do. I need to tell you now, the minute that you begin seeing yourself in relation to the king and living in the kingdom, you are now in direct conflict with the world that you are in. To try to paint a pretty picture of that would be to mislead you. Because at some point in time, you are going to have to take a stand that says to family, friends, co-workers, anyone who is in that. Remember, there are only two kingdoms. Only, there ain't no in-between. There are only two kingdoms. I take this stand. My whole family takes that stand. You know what Jesus said about that? Anyone who loves father or mother more than me is not 
worthy of me. I didn't come to bring peace. came to bring a sword. Isn't that what he says? So it changes the kingdom. That reorientation changes my, my, my priorities and my ambitions, but it also changes my activities. Changes my activities daily and otherwise. Paul writes this. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus. Ephesians 2.10, by the way, for those of you who are taking notes. Uh, 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 let me start again. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. There are, beloved, specific assignments that were specifically prepared for you. My son Ryan works at Belfair. I'm sorry, Ed, Ed, he worked at Belfair. Sorry, I had a brain freeze here. He works at Magnolia Clubhouse. Very specific things that he does every day. Here's what has happened because we have not dealt properly with Savior versus Lord. Most of us look at calling in terms of ecclesiastical calling. I'm called to be a pastor. I'm called to be an evangelist. I'm called to be a missionary. We only see calling in terms of kind of the church stuff. What happens essentially, if you will, in the room. Joseph, Jacob's son, what was he called to be? In Genesis, Joseph became the prime minister of a pagan nation, which happened to be the world's superpower, Egypt. Remember Joseph, that boy, 17 years old, spent 13 years between slavery and in jail, ends up second in command, prime minister, not of a Christian nation, by the way, of a pagan nation that was steeped in idolatry. What is his call? God said, I sent him there. His call was to extend the reign of God in a dark pagan, idolatrous situation, bringing the will of God. The kingdom found its way into Egypt. And that was his calling. So that boss that you somehow think you have in that place that you just can't abide this wicked man or woman or whoever they are, and I'm in this godless place, I can't wait to quit my job so I can go to seminary and be in ministry, get rid of that notion. Because the kingdom won't let you do that. You are called to be in that place that you are. And so as such, then, I have to say then, all right, God, well, let me give you two pieces of advice. First of all, you need to determine, am I here, God, by your calling, or was this my choice? Because the kingdom takes away your prerogatives and choices. The, 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 the works that are assigned are works that he has prepared. Second uh, Corinthians, uh, I'm sorry, Ephesians 2.10 says this, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good work, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. It's the work that God prepares that you have to walk in. If you are walking in things that God has not prepared, and we often, most of us will do this, then the only way to deal with that is repent of that stuff. The Bible talks about uh, in one of those elementary things in Hebrews 6, talks about repent from dead works. Let me give you a definition of dead works. Very easy understanding of dead works because the Bible is very clear. We need to repent of dead works. Dead works are any works that God has not initiated. Any works that God has not initiated are dead works. And the only response to that, according to the scriptures, is repent of them. Six, seven times Jesus talks about initiative in the Gospels. Five of those times, Jesus says this, I don't do anything of my own initiative. I don't, I don't say anything of my own initiative. The point of initiation for Jesus is where? Why? Because he's a son. What's the son do? Please the Father. In the kingdom, what's the, what's the biggest issue in the kingdom? The desire of the king. So he says, I do only the things that are pleasing to my father. Five out of the seven times he says, I don't do anything of my own initiative. 
One of those times he talks about the Holy Spirit, and this is what he says about the Holy Spirit. He's not going to say anything on his own initiative, only what he hears from me and the Father. The seventh time, the only time that Jesus uses the word initiative as it relates to himself, do you know what he says? No one takes my life, but I lay it down of my own initiative. The only thing that Jesus took upon himself to initiate was his death. And I say this to most of us, the real place where initiative lies is, Lord, am I choosing to lay my life down? We know love by this. He laid down his life for us. We lay down our lives one for another. First John 3, 7, uh, 3.16. So it's the matter of initiation. But anything else, he initiates. So And so if I'm in this place just simply because I like it or I think it works better for me or whatever the case, and God's not in it, the only thing for you to do is make that adjustment if you're going to follow it in the kingdom. Because at some point, he's not going to meet you on your terms. You're going to have to relate to him on his. And so that means adjustments. That's where this becomes costly. That's where the conflict comes in. But if you are in the place that you know, God, I'm here. I may not have understood that when I got here, but I know that, that you've been clear with me. This is the place that I am. Then what do you do? I start to listen. And I start to pay attention. And I start to look for those places and listen for those things that say, this is how you need to relate to this work situation that you're in. This person that has been the bane of your existence for for the last six years that you've been here, I want you to specifically give the next month to serve and to esteem them. There needs to be an expectation in terms of the works that, God, you've got some works for me here. There needs to be an attentiveness. I'm now listening. I'm trying to kind of get a sense of, what you are saying so that I can cooperate with that. And the third thing is I'm trying to learn now new ways. Your way to bless this person is, God, I'll bless them with a brick. God's way is offer to wash his car. Kingdom. It's kingdom. Start heaping coals. God has ways. You know, God has some ways of, of, of doing things that if you just simply obey him, Bob Mumford used to talk about wives who have difficult husbands. What he would say was, wife, you know, don't have problems with with submission because when you duck, he gets the brick. God has his ways, but it's that matter of learning how to see the thing in a new light so that you can cooperate with God. He says, I want to teach you my ways because in that you become conformed to my image. The thing about the king and the kingdom is in the with the king, you get to be like him because you're made in his image. So as you navigate these things in the tough places, he's shaping you, he's molding you, he's making you like himself. And then when you connect that within the corporality of the church, and you've got all of these people, New Song Church, that are following his initiatives and his prerogatives and his priorities, not in terms of just simply what you do with him, but how you relate to each other, because you know he does speak to that as well. How are you supposed to relate to each other? When you do that, you now have come to a place where in a collective sense, you are now putting God on display. You are becoming an incarnation. Jesus, it says later on, and, and I'll, I'll stop here. It talks about how he was the fullness of the Godhead in bodily form. Do you realize that in Ephesians 1, I believe it's 123, talks about he's the head over the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. The church, as the agent of the kingdom of God, is to represent the 
fullness in bodily form. When the world wants to know what Jesus looks like, they will never know that by just simply looking at my life or your life. But they will get a better sense of what that's like when they look at our corporate life together. I shared this in the other meeting, and I'll close with this, because I think that it is a significant thing, given the fact that you are New Song Church. As long as we have known you from your very earliest days, one of the distinctive features in this church is this, the fact of your diversity. It is all of the nations and the colors and the stripes, and that is true to this day. Still the case. We're in a climate and a cultural situation that is serious right now. The racial dynamics, the cultural dynamics in this country, I, I, at my age, I've watched this thing over. I've watched, I can count at least four times that we've been at this place. And there are groups that, that are looking at how can we deal with the issues of, of racial reconciliation. Let me tell you something. We don't need another reconciliation meeting. We don't need another series of, of teachings or six principles or five whatever. What we need is a demonstration. It's one thing to diagnose a case. It's another thing to be prescriptive. We know that racism is wrong. We know that bigotry is wrong. We know that prejudice is wrong. We know all of those things are wrong. But just simply not doing the thing that's wrong doesn't tell me what I need to do to do the thing that's right. And it's the thing that's right that becomes costly. Paul refers to himself as a bondservant. In all of his epistles. Do you realize Peter refers to himself as a bondservant in his two epistles? James, in his epistle, refers to himself as a bondservant. For those of you who are ex-Catholics, do you remember Mary's response to Gabriel upon the news that she was going to bear, you know, this son? Remember what she called herself? The Lord's maidservant. Thank you. Do you know what a bondservant is? There's another name for it. It's a slave. It's a slave. The difficulty in that is that in a mixed room, that word means two very different things. Jesus, I'm following you. 200 years of slavery. Another almost 200 years of Jim Crow. And I'm following you and you telling me that I need to be a slave. That does not sound like good news. But here is the issue. He's not saying that I'm a slave this way. I'm his slave. And as his slave, what I bring to bear are all of, all of his abilities, both natural and supernatural. Onesimus, slave, left Philemon because he stole from him, found himself in Europe with Paul, became helpful and useful to Paul. Paul sends Onesimus back to Philemon, says anything that he's done against you, put it to my account because you owe me. Do you know where Onesimus ended up? He was the bishop of the church at Ephesus. If there was a church that epitomized what the church was, Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus is kind of the, the opus, whatever, concerning the church. It was that church, and this former slave ends up there. I mentioned earlier, Tertullian, Augustine, 
Athanasius, Cyprian, all of those were Africans. Did you know that? All were Africans. Augustine, next maybe Paul has had no, no one has had a greater impact on the church than him. And this continent that was so dark that there was nothing good coming out. Who did God use? In your own history, William Seymour couldn't sit in the room with Charles Parham. Why? Because of Jim Crow. So he couldn't sit in the room. Parham did all of the teaching and stuff about that. Who does God use? Not Charles Parham. William Seymour. When you become the Lord's bondservant, <laughs> I'll choose whomever I want to choose and everybody else. You got, uh, you got to get used to that. John Dawson said, sometimes God will raise people up just to test everybody else's heart. Anybody but this one. Let me just finish with the other side of that, lest, lest those of you who are like me think that I'm picking on you. When it comes to privilege and expectation, a lot of my, a lot of my friends years ago used to say this about white folks. Why do you always got to rule things? Why do you always got to be running something and telling people control spirit and all of this other stuff? And, and it's an observation because every time you put them in the room, they want to start. But what happens when you've been in that place and God says, no, in this place, I want you to be the servant. When you're used to ruling and the Lord says, no, I want you to serve. That's a tough call because you're used to all of the perks that come with that. God says, no, 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 no. In this case, you become now the servant and the slave. The definition of servanthood is this, one who will make one successful at his own expense. Did Jesus not do that? You have corporately the ability to demonstrate something to a world that needs to see not what it shouldn't be, but what it should be. In this season, you are transitioning into a role that I believe is a part of your destiny as a people. God wants you to learn how to express the heart of the king and to display the life in the kingdom. I got so much more that's in my notes. I couldn't even go there, but I feel like this was the thing God wanted you all to hear this morning. You have the ability to work this out in a way which honors him and extends his kingdom here. Let others say, that's what it looks like. See how they love each other. You all outdo each other in being servants and slaves to one another. Let him direct that. The minute that you try to direct that, you're going to mess it up. You'll mess it up. So I'm saying stronger connection here, stronger connection there. Learn to live for the king and for his kingdom. Let's pray. Father, I just give you thanks. That, Lord, you choose weak, foolish, base, despised things. Lord, you, your, your foolishness is greater than the wisdom of men. And so, Lord, I thank you that you have called us to things with one another that seem on the surface horrible, antithetical to us, but you in your wisdom work those things in such a way that you are glorified. You will choose, Father, a barren man to birth multitudes of nations. Can you not use those such as these and as we to manifest your glorious, the glorious riches of your inheritance in the saints and to say to a dark world filled with injustice and immorality, filled with unrighteousness and greed, can you not bring together a covenant people in such a way where when the world looks on, they say, isn't that different? This is what life is like under the reign of their king. Lord, even as the pagan nations had to acknowledge you under the old covenant and in the New Testament, in the Old Testament, Lord, I pray that in this time, those who are the unrighteous, the pagans, the wicked ones will look upon 
what goes on in your church, in this church, and have to say, look at what their God has done, that you cannot and will not be ignored, Lord. Lord, I pray that there would be a wave of conviction and humility that sweeps through this church. Lord, may there be a spirit of servanthood that moves through this church. May there be, Lord, an apprehension of you and one another in such a way that they outdo one another in honoring you and in honoring one another. And Lord, that together they might bring glory to your name so that you become famous because of how they have put you on display. Oh, God, get glory for yourself in and through and from New Song Church. For I ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.